Ladies and gentlemen and non-binary peoples alike, you know what that music means. It's time for another amazing, fantabulous episode of Wired Up. This is Wired Up episode 77 here on a fantabulous Sunday morning. I hope y'all are having an amazing, fantabulous day. Thank you for stopping in with us and spending a good part of that day here with us. So, Friday, we had not just the bonus episode of the DSD podcast, but we also did our story on the Cleveland Browns and how the process fixed the worst franchise in American professional sports. And we didn't talk any NBA basketball for about three days, and now here we are sitting here Sunday. Uh, we've got two more games this afternoon between the Nuggets and the Suns and the epic game four between the Bucks and the Nets. We'll get to that in a little bit uh, at some point, as well as the, the Nuggets and Suns. We'll get to both of those games coming up later as all game fours are going to be played either Sunday or Monday. So you know there's going to be a lot to dissect as we get closer and closer to the end of these series and three of the four playoff series are now 2-1 with the exception of the Phoenix Suns beating the living crap out of the Denver Nuggets. So we'll get to that one, as I said, in a bit. But first, here on Wired Up, let's talk about the Utah Jazz and the Los Angeles Clippers because this series has been back and forth and back and forth and probably... I mean, Bucks and Nets has the most stakes to it, but this Clippers-Jazz series has been the most fascinating series of the four so far here in the playoffs. And this is the same thing it was in round one when we had eight. It was the Utah Jazz. Uh, well, they were kind of coasting their way, but it was just the Utah Jazz are now the new Dallas Mavericks. And the Mavericks-Clippers series was that super interesting series that, what, everyone excited and now here we are sitting on Sunday morning with four games or I'm sorry four series three games in the books wow that was not a great way to kick that off anyways so let's talk about the Utah Jazz because since we talked about game one and we talked about game one briefly we haven't had much of a chance to talk about this series and so the Utah Jazz are entering Game three yesterday, up 2-0 in the series. Donovan Mitchell is averaging 41 points a game throughout this series. And the way he's been doing that, even without Mike Conley and an offense that is the closest thing to the Golden State Warriors since the 2015 Golden State Warriors, the one before the Warriors had won a championship that revolutionized basketball, etc., etc., uh, even before that came down, the... Utah Jazz, with Mike Conley and with the run that they've been going on so far, the Utah Jazz are the closest thing that exists to that Warriors team. And so, Donovan Mitchell averages 41 points a game. The offense runs through him. He had 29 shots in Game 2 for the Utah Jazz and ended up with 37 points in a rout of the Clippers who kind of struggled offensively and Marcus Morris is back to being Bobo, so uh, I know I said good things about Marcus Morris a while ago, 
Uh, and, uh, you know, he made me eat my words because I said when talking about why it made no basketball sense for Kawhi Leonard to return to the Los Angeles Clippers, uh, Marcus Morris hit like six three-pointers in Game 7, and Luke Kennard had 11 points. So both of them proved me wrong then, and now both of them are back to their Marcus Morris and Luke Kennard ways. I'm not sure why we have beef with Marcus Morris and Luke Kennard, but their bad contracts apparently makes it such that we have beef now with Marcus Morris and Luke Kennard. So, with that being said, so they beat the Jazz beat up on the Clippers in Game 2, and Donovan Mitchell had 37 points, 29 shots. Offense ran through him. And the Utah Jazz, the reason they were able to do this for as long as they have is even if you put Kawhi Leonard on Donovan Mitchell, what they keep doing time and time again is switching on rotations. So they do screens and they get matchups with Donovan Mitchell. Donovan Mitchell had been basically screening onto the worst defenders on the Los Angeles Clippers, whether that be Marcus Morris or Reggie Jackson, a lot of Reggie Jackson, by the way. Um, Donovan Mitchell just became the de facto point guard and just ran screens to get matchups with bad defenders because, again, Mike Conley has been out for the entire series and Royce O'Neal slides into that spot in the starting lineup. And Royce O'Neal can play some point guard, but the offense uh, would be better off with Donovan Mitchell as the primary ball handler, which the offense runs through. And so Utah ends up finishing game two with 24 points off the bench, every single one coming from Jordan Clarkson, which side note on Jordan Clarkson, he's taken a big step up since that Mike Conley injury. And they kind of have to because the team in the first place was about eight or nine deep. If you want to count the nine minutes of Georges and Yang, the team only goes about eight or nine deep in Utah. And so a lot of different people are in a lot of different situations where they have to start stepping up. And so this creates an interesting situation for the Utah Jazz in terms of where are you going to get your offensive production if not from Donovan Mitchell. And Jordan Clarkson took on a huge role. There was a time in Game 3 at the start of the second half where Utah had scored 35 bench points in Games 2 and Games 3 and every single one of the 35 came from Jordan Clarkson because Utah at this point runs a six, a de facto six deep slash seven deep where Derek Favors and Rudy Gobert switch off the ball for switch off the court for each other, basically. So they never play on the court together. Derek Favors is basically Rudy Gobert's backup. And if Rudy plays 36, Favors plays 12. If Rudy plays 38 minutes, Favors plays 10 minutes. They they never play on the court at the same time, and they alternate for each other because Derek Favors, is he can't stay on the floor for an extended period of time because he's just not the defensive presence that Rudy Gobert is, obviously. And that's, you know, no shade to Derek Favors. That's just the way that that offense runs through. So Utah scores all of their points coming out from... Donovan Mitchell and Jordan Clarkson uh, and Bogdanovich and Jingles, which is what I call Joe Ingles, and Royce O'Neal comes into the lineup, and he's been a great addition for them, and Mike Conley and Rudy Gobert can sometimes get you a dunk or two, but more so 
he's the defensive presence that totally changes the Utah Jazz off, or Utah Jazz defense, which makes them a top five defensive team almost just because they have Rudy there. And I was watching game three pretty intently, and that dude is just not fair on the defensive end of the ball. Rudy Gobert is just a crazy freakish human being and so one of the interesting things that's gone on for Utah this year is that they have been the three-point barrage team around Donovan Mitchell is just shooters surround with shooters 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 and more shooters you have Joe Ingles shoots 45 percent from three he's got the highest true shooting percentage in the NBA which is a big statistic for evaluating a lot of these uh, numbers for you know a team like Utah or I'm sorry uh, for shooters in the NBA at a time where teams the worst team in the NBA from the three-point line shoots more three-pointers than the Warriors did in 2015 when they won the NBA championship it's just because they were shooting more three-pointers than Golden State was back in the 2000 and what 2014 yeah, 2014-2015 season, the Warriors shot 27 threes a game. Now the lowest ranked team in the NBA shoots 28. It's just the way the game's changed. And Utah has taken this to another level as well, which is going to lead us into the good talk about the Clippers, is that despite the fact the Clippers allow only 35% shooting from the three-point line and the fact that Utah as a team this year was 38% from the three-point line, In the first two games of the series against the Clippers, the Utah Jazz shot 41% from the three-point line. They shot 41% as a team from the three-point line. And it's not like that number disappeared in game number three. The Utah Jazz shot 43% from the three-point line in game three versus the Los Angeles Clippers. So, the Utah Jazz have been remarkable this season, and they just continued it through the playoffs. I mean, with Donovan Mitchell, they won six consecutive playoff games while shooting close to 40% as a team. Some with Mike Conley, some without Mike Conley, but still, the Utah Jazz have been impeccable this year offensively. And so... Donovan Mitchell is a big part of that offense, and they get the the production value from Jingles, who had a terrible game too, but still Utah dominated because Bogdanovich was awesome, and Donovan Mitchell had 37 points, and Jordan Clarkson had 24 off the bench. And the only players that come off the bench for Utah are Clarkson and occasional Derek Favors, and Georges Niang gets about nine minutes when Donovan Mitchell needs a break. It's it's remarkable offense that the the Utah Jazz run where they kind of alternate alternate and Bogdanovich gets a lot of minutes and it's the the offense that the Milwaukee Bucks should be running the Milwaukee Bucks should be getting to a point with their offense where Giannis is going to play 40 minutes Middleton's going to play 40 minutes Drew Holiday's going to play close to 40 minutes and they should go to the eight-man rotation with their starting five being those three Brooke Lopez and P.J. Tucker as well as having Bryn Forbes and Bobby Portis and Pat Connaughton come off the bench and everyone else can go pound sand and then have, you know, those three-point barrages that help supplement the victory, whether it's Bryn Forbes hitting a bunch of threes or if it's P.J. Tucker hitting some three-pointers. 
that's just the way that you supplement the offense if you're Milwaukee. And they haven't quite gotten to that point yet, but Game 3 was a step in the right direction. And to be honest, if Milwaukee wins Game 4, which again, Game 4s are huge for this exact reason. It's a very fun rhyme, but it's very simple when it comes to the NBA, especially at a point where we have three series right now that are 2-1. If it's 2-2, the series is new. If it's 3-1, it's all but done. And this is a big deal for the Clippers going into Game 4 on Monday, but also specifically today, or maybe it's already happened by the time you're listening to this podcast, the Milwaukee Bucks need this victory against Brooklyn, because I had already said going into Game 3, it was going to be difficult for the Milwaukee Bucks to beat Brooklyn four out of five times. And winning the Game 3 despite playing terribly for Milwaukee and having only 86 points, but holding Brooklyn offensively to 84 was a blessing for the Milwaukee Bucks. Just an absolute blessing to be able to walk away with that victory. Despite the fact that, you know, Middleton and Giannis had 65 of their 84 points or 65 of their 86 points in that game three, it was a blessing in disguise. But it's the same thing where they need that victory. And the Clippers needed a victory, and they, (laughs) the joke I was making around that is like Paul George and Kawhi Leonard come to play whenever they are faced with an elimination type situation. Those two dudes just come to play. And so the Clippers end up winning game three by about 30 points and one of the things that they did that was so fascinating and I want to spend a couple minutes on this idea the Los Angeles Clippers in the first 18 minutes of the game every time Donovan Mitchell ran the screen from the running of the offense Donovan Mitchell was double teamed on every single one of those switches It'd be either fight through the screen and double team. It would be pull over Nick Batum and go into a double team. They doubled on every single play that Donovan Mitchell had the basketball. And this was a really fascinating turn of events for the Los Angeles Clippers defensively because Donovan Mitchell had zero points. Zero at the beginning of the game. First 17 minutes of the game, he had zero points and somehow got to 15 before halftime, all in like five minutes because he's Donovan Mitchell and he hits step back three pointers and drains them just as he's about to step out of bounds. And so the Utah Jazz stayed close with the Clippers because 23 of their first 29 points came from either Joe Ingles or Jordan Clarkson. But Donovan Mitchell had nothing, and one of the ways they could do it was basically say to Rudy Gobert, yeah, sure, go ahead, run around. You're going to run the screen. Just run around out there. We're going to double-team you. What are you going to do, hit a jump shot on us? You're Rudy Gobert. You're never going to hit that jump shot on us, and no, he did not. Rudy Gobert had uh, about four points in the first half, and they were on two layups and dunks. So, yeah, Rudy Gobert is not much of a threat for those – for those Utah Jazz off, or for those Los Angeles Clippers defenses. And so this strategy was super effective to give the Clippers that big lead and then obviously followed up with Paul George and Kawhi Leonard both going bonkers in that game three. Paul George had 20 at halftime, but he ended up finishing the game with 31. Kawhi Leonard had 34. 
Uh, Batum had 17. Reggie Jackson hit four straight three-pointers to start the game. Like, the Clippers were just all over the place. We got Patrick Beverly minutes again. There was a rare Patrick Beverly sighting after he'd been just terrible to kick off the playoffs. The Clippers dropped 132 freaking points on one of the best defenses in the NBA. And Utah got to 100 points ultimately in the end. Donovan Mitchell went from the start of the game having zero points in the first 17 minutes to still finishing with 30, and the offense running completely through him uh, in the second half and back end of the second quarter. It was actually quite remarkable to watch. And the Clippers end up winning the game rather handily, and it pushes everything forward for the Clippers. And so, or at least at the very least, it keeps their push alive. And this feels like where this series is going to go. Game four is going to be so interesting to watch, but all of these game fours in 2-1 series are going to be ridiculously interesting to watch, especially the Milwaukee-Brooklyn game going on this afternoon. It's going to be so interesting to see what Brooklyn does because still no James Harden, and that was a that was the crazy headline of the weekend is like Brian Windhorst was talking about on Friday on the Hoop Collective. I want to... Give credit to Brian Windhorst and the Hoop Collective here, but they were talking about how Brooklyn is being so protective with Ky- with James Harden's injury that nobody really knows exactly what's going on with the injury to his hamstring. And this has been kind of a weird revelation across the last few games, and Mike Conley being out for Utah You would think changes the math, but Utah just gets an even shorter bench, which, you know, can have its ramifications. You know, there can be issues with having a short bench for either of these teams. It can be a bit of a problem once, you know, a Joe Ingles shoots one for seven or a Bogdanovich only has, you know, nine points in a game like he did in game three. And by the way, I didn't even mean to do that. I was just throwing out a number and it turns out Bogdanovich only had nine points in game three versus the Clippers is that there's just not enough offense to replicate, especially when the Clippers defense denies Donovan Mitchell for at least a period of time. I mean, this is kind of the thing with great players like Donovan Mitchell, who's now becoming one of these faces of a new generation with his buddy, Rudy Gobert, who's older than him, certainly, but Rudy Gobert is part of that new generation and Giannis and Jokic and Anthony Davis and Joel Embiid and Devin Booker, who we'll get to in our B block when we talk about this Nuggets and Suns series. But what's been fascinating from a, a Donovan Mitchell standpoint is just that he's been such a focal point of that offense and the fact that he's averaging, you know, 35 points a game in three games and they're 2 1 in the series. And he scored 30 points in every game. But the fact that the Clippers shut him down for about a quarter and a half. And they had to take... the Utah, that was another thing. Utah just had to take Rudy Gobert off the floor. They're like, he's just too much of an offensive liability right now. We're falling behind. We started off the game up 8-0. So really from 8-0, they got outscored by like 40 points by the Los Angeles Clippers. It was just it just got to a point where they had to look around, look themselves in the mirror and kind of say, "Okay, we have to change the way that we're running the offense." And the Clippers were able to contain Mitchell just enough and score enough points offensively because that's the other thing that changes the math of this game. Is the Clippers as a team shooting 
53% from the three-point line. They shot 53% as a team, 19 three-pointers for the Los Angeles Clippers. They shot almost 60% from the field as a team. They out-rebounded the Utah Jazz. It was quite remarkable to see the Clippers play the way that they did, and ultimately they're rewarded with winning that game versus the Utah Jazz. And so the Clippers go into game game four with a kind of must-win attitude, mostly because you have to play two games over in Utah. Not like game three wasn't a total must-win, because if you go down 3-0, series is basically over. But the Clippers kind of have a strategy going into it. A lot of it involves a, a lot of scoring. Obviously, they don't, they won this game by a lot. But Kawhi Leonard and Paul George keep reminding us throughout this playoffs. And we've been talking about the playoffs for over three weeks now. We're headed into week four of the NBA playoffs. And Paul George and Kawhi Leonard keep reminding us, like, there's still some bad dudes. Maybe Paul George can't give you 30 on every night, but he can give you 30 when you need it. And... Sometimes it doesn't happen, but it definitely came through in that game versus the Utah Jazz, and everything is pointing in that direction for the Los Angeles Clippers to get back into this series. I don't know what the the Vegas odds are looking like on Game 4. This is something that we should have probably looked up in advance to, you know, kind of stimulate and see. You know, Vegas has been pretty good. They kind of have a vested interest in it, so... Let's see what they have for uh, early numbers on Jazz and Clippers. It looks like uh, they're not offering bets yet, but uh, let's see what they're doing for Milwaukee and Brooklyn while I'm here. Wow, 83% of the bets spread on Brooklyn, 89% on the money line. They are big on Milwaukee. They're saying Milwaukee's going to end up winning this game rather handily, or Vegas might lose the house because... They, they put a lot on Brooklyn last time. Not quite this much, but they put a lot on Brooklyn. And Brooklyn ended up covering the point spread in that game. They only lost by three points. So they ended up covering the five-point spread against Milwaukee. Now, they're the slight favorites. Vegas wants to get people betting on Brooklyn. And uh, they are confident in Milwaukee. So I like it. And Kevin Durant's got a bit of a foot injury, apparently. So... Uh, roll with Milwaukee. I told you to roll with Milwaukee in game three on the DSD podcast. And uh, if you bet Milwaukee money line, you won. I'm Yeah, if you bet many money line, you won. But if you bet against the spread, you lost because they didn't get a five-point victory. But looks like they're big on Milwaukee. And this is the thing I've been saying for a bit about Milwaukee is just if you can get to a 2-2 series, they can definitely win two out of three. Four out of five look daunting for the Milwaukee Bucks. And this is the thing that I talk about with Giannis. Is like I look to the other side and I'm like, oh, they've got a Kevin Durant. They've got someone who can do the same things Giannis can and dominate in the same way Giannis can. But Giannis doesn't have those supplemental pieces. Sometimes Chris Middleton, like Chris Middleton has turned it around in this most recent series. I don't want to crap on Chris Middleton a bit, but he he's turned it around quite a bit in this game three where he put up 35 or 30 points, 35. Can't remember if he was 35 or 30. One was 35, one was 30 for the Bucks, as the rest of the team couldn't really get offense rolling. And it's going to be a big test for Milwaukee going into game four to see if that balance of the offense can come back for 
the Milwaukee Bucks. And, you know, Bryn Forbes can hit a three-pointer here. P.J. Tucker can hit a three-pointer. Because I imagine Brooklyn is not going to shoot as poorly as they did in Game 3. Um, it was more of a regression to the mean. If you uh, if you had a drinking game on me saying regression to the mean, make sure to grab a shot. Even though, by my standards, we are recording at 6.18 in the morning on the West Coast. But uh, it's 5 o'clock somewhere. So if you're playing the take it easy drinking game, you hear me say regression to the mean. That means you got to take a shot here this morning. But uh, to the point on the Milwaukee Bucks... Brooklyn's probably going to score a bit more, and defensively, Milwaukee has been pretty good in in the past couple games of the series. I know Brooklyn got them pretty good in Game 2. Game 1 was a really tough defensive performance for Milwaukee, but I, so if Milwaukee holds them, you know, Brooklyn obviously has their shortcomings on defense, but Milwaukee's struggled to get to 100 points in each of the three games of this series, so we'll see if Milwaukee ends up improving as well in game four and Vegas is really banking on it. They are big on the Milwaukee Bucks. So I guess we'll see how that ends up playing out across the next 12 hours. Or maybe if you're listening right now, that game is already done and uh, we can uh, move on to game four, which we might end up talking about tomorrow on the take it easy podcast, given that this series is the equivalent possibility of the NBA finals. Although I wouldn't put it past either the jazz or the team we're about to talk about next, the Phoenix Suns. Phoenix Suns are going to win this series against the Denver Nuggets. They're up 3-0. Game four is today. By the time you're listening to this, the series might be over. And, uh, We'll get Gage Bridgeford and our boy House of Phoenix Suns in here at some point. But uh, in the meantime, Jokic had a 30-20-10 game three for the Denver Nuggets and still lost by 14 points. 30 points, 20 rebounds, 10 assists. Here's the players in NBA history who have accomplished that. Wilt Chamberlain, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Nikola Jokic. So how does Nikola Jokic have a 30-20-10 game that only three Hall of Famers and three MVPs, now that Nikola Jokic has officially won the MVP, how is it such that Jokic has only a 14-point defeat to show for that 30-20-10 game three? Well, it starts with Aaron Gordon. And for context on Aaron Gordon, some of the analysis that I brought up going into this series is that the Denver Nuggets' three best players are all 6'8 or larger. Now, the Phoenix Suns can put Michael Bridges, who is a fantastic defender, on Michael Porter Jr., but they don't quite have the defensive bigs to match up with the Phoenix Suns. The Phoenix Suns' best defensive bigs come from the, or I'm sorry, the Phoenix Suns' best defense comes from Chris Paul and Devin Booker in their perimeter defense, which will shut down Facundo Campasso and Austin Rivers because Facundo Campasso, Austin Rivers, and Monte Morris, I should throw Monte Morris in there as well. Those guys aren't great defensive players. And so the Utah, I'm sorry, the Denver Nuggets 
sorry, all these mountain time zone teams that are playing well in the Western Conference got me a little bit confused here. But the Utah Jazz, which is what I'm calling the Denver Nuggets now. So Denver has that offense basically gone away. And apart from that 21-point Monte Morris game three, they haven't really gotten the production from Compasso or Austin Rivers. He's had a couple 10-point games in there, but, you know, it's, it's Austin Rivers. 11 points is kind of what you can expect, 7-11. to 11. And apart from the one Monte Morris game, they haven't had the production from the guard play. It's been great defense from Chris Paul and great defense from Devin Booker. And the offense for the Phoenix Suns has been able to outscore Denver, but specifically their defensive play left them vulnerable as it leaves Denver vulnerable because Chris Paul and Devin Booker are the best offensive players for the Phoenix Suns and being guarded by Facundo Campasso and Austin Rivers, even though they ultimately switched Aaron Gordon onto, I think, Chris Paul at one point. Um, it, it hasn't worked out very well in stopping Devin Booker and Chris Paul. They've gone for 15 plus points in every game. Uh, Chris Paul and Devin Booker and Michael Bridges and DeAndre Ayton, as we talked about in games one and two on Thursday, they all had 15 points. And in game two, they all had 20 points. And while they didn't have that level of offensive output in game three, Chris Paul, and maybe this is a stat of the day, uh, Chris Paul and Devin Booker combined for 55 points in game three while holding the Denver Nuggets big three, which is Jokic in his 30-20-10 game and Michael Porter Jr. and Aaron Gordon, the three of them had 51 points. And the Suns, Chris Paul, Devin Booker backcourt had 55. So those two outscored the big three of the Denver Nuggets. And in addition, the Denver Nuggets had a 21-point game from Monte Morris. But you look at the rest of the Suns roster, and the Suns have some guys who can score at will. Michael Bridges had 15 points. DeAndre Ayton had a double-double. Jay Crowder can hit a few three-pointers here and there. There's always a Cameron Payne game that's coming up when he absolutely cooked the Los Angeles Lakers in the first round. He hasn't quite had that big game here in this series, but Cameron Payne is like their Bryn Forbes, or he's like their Royce O'Neal. Or in the case of the Clippers, he's their Reggie Jackson, where Reggie Jackson might be the third best player on the Los Angeles Clippers. and. It's kind of weird to think about that the third best player on the Clippers is Reggie Jackson because some people are letting him down. But Cameron Payne's just been a welcome addition to the offense now and then. And so the Suns end up winning game three rather handily. They won by 12 points in Denver on Friday. They'll finish it off maybe today here on Sunday, or maybe they've already finished it off by the time that you're listening to this podcast. And the Phoenix Suns have limited Aaron Gordon to a four point performance on two of 10 shooting, despite the fact that there's an undersized matchup on Aaron Gordon and he should just be getting to the rim over and over and over and bullying 
the Suns' defense. This is the conundrum the Lakers found with Anthony Davis, is that it's best when he gets to the rim and gets layups and dunks, but he's a tall guy, but he's not necessarily a big guy. This is the struggle that the Denver Nuggets have been going through for the past few games. So to that point, the Denver Nuggets find themselves down 0-3. Michael Porter Jr., the guy who is the hero of the the series against Portland, stepping up as a second best player on the team, being guarded by Michael Bridges. Michael Porter Jr. has scored 15, 11, and 15 points in the first three games of the series, which the Nuggets now find themselves down 0-2. For quick math, that's 41 points in three games, which adds up to 13.7 points per game. So not only is Michael Porter Jr. not filling the um, Jamal Murray role in this Phoenix Sun series, he's actually shooting less than his regular season average of 18 points per game. So they've taken away Michael Porter Jr. with the defense of Michael Bridges, which I totally failed to account for at the beginning of the series when I talked about those three big dudes for the jet for the nuggets and felt like there was no way that series was going anywhere other than seven games forgot to account for the excellent defense of Michael bridges on Michael Porter jr. The entire series 13.7 points per game from him. And it leaves Jokic as the only offensive weapon left. And to be honest, this is where the, this was the matchup where the realities of not having Jamal Murray caught up to them. With Portland, Portland didn't have the defensive firepower to keep up, but Phoenix's defense, limiting Capasso, limiting Austin Rivers, limiting Aaron Gordon, and limiting Michael Porter Jr. to less than their averages. Not that they've like contained them all together, but just less than their averages throughout the series has been just enough to get all three victories, combined with the fact that the Phoenix Suns have shot ridiculously well in the first few games of that series. And so Phoenix well on their way to a victory. They're going to end up maybe winning game three to, or sorry, winning game four in a series that, you know, three, one is all but done. And, uh, that either way, the three Oh series basically puts everything at the end of the line for the Suns. Oh, Vegas is taking 88% on the Suns and 87% money line on the Suns. That means bet Denver tonight. Bet the house, bet the Denver Nuggets big time tonight. Uh, I might do it. Someone should do a parlay on that. So, you know what? I'm going to do it right now. Dune, dune, lock it in. Milwaukee, Denver, parlay, roll with the house. See if you can make some nice little dough here today. If you're tuning in later, you can find out whether I was spectacularly right or wrong in the aftermath. But, they're saying roll with Denver today. Maybe that's a, a in part because Phoenix is going to get ready to take a shot. Regress to the mean after having a game three where they shot 46% from the three-point line. A game two where they shot 47% from the three-point line. And a game one in which they shot 38% from the three-point line. So maybe they are prone for a regression to the mean at some point here since they're shooting like 44% from the three-point line in this Denver Nuggets series because the Nuggets don't have the perimeter defense to compete with the Suns. And there's a lot of good shooters on the Phoenix Suns, whether it's Bridges, uh, Campaign, 
Jay Crowder, uh, Chris Paul, and of course, the baddest MFer in the NBA right now, Devin Booker. Not the best player in the NBA right now, but Devin Booker, for my money, in the past six games that the Phoenix Suns have won, because the Suns are 6-0 and in their last six games, Devin Booker is the baddest MFer in the NBA right now. So did we indeed spend 10 minutes talking about a series that's now 3-0 and we'll probably talk about again because we'll have Gage Bridgeford and House of Phoenix Suns come back on at some point? Absolutely. But that's how we do it here on Wired Up on a Sunday where there's about four playoff basketball series consuming all of the sports world. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping in here to Wired Up episode 77 we have episodes every single day on the take it easy podcast monday through friday as well as these episodes here on sundays which began as a way to talk about college football on football sundays but now has evolved into a new unique and sometimes exactly similar version of the take it easy podcast follow leave a five-star review uh it doesn't have to be a nice review just needs to be a review so uh, thank you again for stopping in, everybody. Uh, this has been Wired Up episode 77, and we'll be back again tomorrow with some more fun content from Take It Easy.